Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. You've said, okay, well, you know, you need to have this label of ADHD or bipolar depression or schizophrenia or clinical um, clinical anxiety disorder. You, know, you needed this clinical medical diagnosis to make it valid. But your story is valid. You do not need a medical diagnosis to make what you're going through valid. What you're experiencing deserves to be honored. Hello, my Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I welcome Dr. Caroline Leaf back on to the show. Dr. Leaf is a communication pathologist, an audiologist, clinical and cognitive neuroscientist with a master's and PhD in communication pathology and a BSc in logopedics, specializing in cognitive and metacognitive neuropsychology. Since the early 80s, the OG, she has researched the mind-brain connection, the nature of mental health, the formation of memory, and she was the first in her field to study how the brain can change with neuroplasticity with directed mind input. So Dr. Caroline Leaf was on the show last year, I believe, and we were talking about cleaning up your mental mess. And she's back on the show today talking about her latest book, Directed Towards Our Beautiful Children. So helping our children cleaning up their mental mess as you, if you are a parent or you are a niece or, or I should say an aunt or an uncle, and you have nieces or nephews, you may have seen that the struggles that our beautiful kids have today, uh, having lived through a pandemic and the response and adults telling them all types of adults telling them crazy things, we have uh, a very different model for mental health today than we did uh, maybe even 10 or 20 years ago. So we had her back on the show to talk about the difference between the brain and the mind, the difference in the way that we have cared for uh, our patients over the last 40 or 50 years with a potentially maladaptive focus on the brain only and wanting to label everything and give it a drug rather than potentially looking at the story and the lived experience of the individual and helping them metabolize the uh, experiences and the way that they uh, integrate and interpret um, their experiences in their lives. We talk about thinking and feeling and choosing as driving dendritic brain growth. We talk about the different types. So for my nerds that are listening, you're like, oh, this is great. We talked about the different brain waves. So we talked about delta and theta and alpha and beta and beta crest and gamma and how all of these, when we're looking at the way that the brain operates and the way that the mind operates, how this can drive growth and learning. We talked about how we can begin to take control of catastrophizing thoughts and create an identity that serves us. So we talked a lot about identity and what identity means, kind of the scaffolding that you construct to change the to change our own identity in a specific way. And then we get into the neurocycle for children. So this is a model that Dr. Leaf has articulated around increasing awareness, reflection, writing, rechecking, and active reach. And we talk all about that, about teaching kids self-resilience, the importance of free play versus structured play, 
This is going to be a fabulous conversation. If you are a mother, a father, a caregiver, you are a teacher, you are an educator, anyone who deals with children on a regular basis, this one's for you. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Caroline Leaf. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Caroline Leaf, I am just tickled to welcome you back to the Better Podcast. Welcome back. Thank you. It's so great to be back with you, Stephanie. It's lovely seeing you again. Lovely seeing you as well. And the last time that you were on here, we were talking about your original book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. And now you've come out with a companion, I would say, book to the original. And this is really geared for parents and their children, which I'm very excited about because this is something that we're starting to see more and more of. We're starting to see our beautiful children struggling with how to integrate demands and stressors and what are the right coping strategies. So maybe we can just start there in terms of 
what you are observing in your community, maybe moms, caregivers, dads, are uh, are you noticing an uptick in, say, um, maybe more depression, more anxiety, more of a poor resilience, we'll say? Are you or is that something that you're noticing on a sort of a larger scale? For sure, on a larger scale. I don't practice clinically anymore, but I'm doing a lot of research and doing a lot of um, you know, writing papers, writing books, doing conferences, and we get thousands of emails constantly and contact through social media. And th- this is a real, it, it's a real crisis. And it's interesting because the crisis in mental health is spanning right from very young, you know, two, three, and four-year-olds all the way through to adulthood. But there's a very important but here. Mental health issues have always been around. So this is not something new. So, but there is something different about what's happening at the moment. And if you, and you can actually trace it, Stephanie, it's very interesting because the last 40, 50 years, there was a shift in how we manage mental health Hmm. and keys the word manage mental health. And the way that we've managed mental health has actually made things worse. So the research is clear in showing that the shift that happened around 40, 50 years ago is part of the reason why we have this crisis today. And that is a very interesting kind of thing to a way to look at it because we the the messaging that that parents are getting and that everyone's getting pretty much is that there's a terrible crisis with our with our youth in mental health, with our children in mental health, with adults. There's an increase since COVID. There was problem whatever. We're just hearing this all the time, mm-hmm. and we're talking more about it, which is great. But we're not talking the way it's being managed, the way it's being talked about, the messaging that we are giving our children, the messaging that our children are growing up in. And and adolescents and um, Gen Z, Gen the millennials, ad- adults, all ages is wrong, and that is very concerning. So forty years ago, we had forty fifty years ago, things shifted, and we became very very focused on the brain, very neuroce- neurocentric. Very after after forty years or before, what was what was how, I guess my question, and I, I think you're about to answer it, is how did the management shift like forty to fifty years ago? What was the messaging and the management? What was the change there? Okay, so the shift that occurred was that around 40, 50 years ago, we started talking more about the mental health system as being a biomedical problem. So in other words, instead of seeing a person in life having experiences, going through stuff and having responses to those things. If you know if you are abused in some way or if you're being bullied at school or something, those are adverse circumstances. You're going to respond with um, anxiety or worry or panic or stress or trauma or you know trauma responses and all that kind of thing. That is completely normal. So what we what we were doing and should still be doing is looking at the whole person in context. But 40 years ago, 50 years ago, around about there, it shifted and the whole blue between medical problems like a cardiovascular issue or diabetes or cancer or something medical that's physically wrong with the brain and the body that that um the blurring line between mental health challenges from normal life events got put into and lumped into the category of being a medical issue so what's happened then is our life and behaviors and experiencing life became medical problems. We medicalized misery and we've literally pathologized childhood. And so the normal things that we go through in life that are challenging, that make us, um, that, that we respond to, like being bullied or going through horrible traumatic events, which unfortunately is just part of being life, part of being alive as a human, those impact us. That they will increase depression. They will make you anxious. They will make you feel, you know, experience trauma. That isn't a medical problem. 
So what's happening is at the moment, it's being seen as a medical problem, as a disease. The person's story is kind of being put to the side and the person's symptoms are being looked at. Now, that's what you do with a medical issue. So if someone is presenting with certain cardiovascular symptoms or symptoms of diabetes, the medical professionals will look at the symptoms, will then look for the underlying biological cause and make a diagnosis based on that. So diabetes, type 1, something's wrong with the insulin and the pancreas, so you've tracked this from the symptom to the biological cause, and then the treatment is aimed at trying to sort out the insulin problem. Totally fantastic, makes incredible sense for physical brain, physical body. But when it comes to someone, a child who's being teased consistently at school, or someone who's going through, whose parents are, um, you know, going through a lot of their own issues, so the child's not receiving the kind of care that they need, or whatever, all those things that can happen in life, that is not a medical problem. But, it, but the child's going to show up with various behavioral and emotional and physical and perspective issues. And those are not who they are. They're showing up as signals. So if we take those the way they're showing up as symptoms of a disease, we're then just going to say, oh, they, they've got ADHD. They've got, um, they've got anxiety issues. They've got bipolar depression because their mood's swinging. So the, and, and then the assumption is that, well, they've got a chemical imbalance in their brain or they've got something, you know, there's a genetic issue or the, you know, their brains, there's something wrong physically in their brain. So it moves away from the child's story or the adult story to the symptom and finding a biological cause. That works for medicine. It doesn't work for mental health. And we see that. So for 40 years, that shift has happened. And it happened, Stephanie, because people became, um, we learned more about the brain. So in the 80s, when I first started studying, we didn't have the MRI. We had CT scans and we had EEG, but it was only in the mid-90s. So once the mid-90s hit us and we started learning more about the brain, this seemed to become a great way of looking at people's mental health problems. And that's what's happened. So the shift moved over to, okay, well, let's look at the symptom. It's something in the brain and the story became separated. So that's a long answer, but it's a very important answer because it, the way you look at the way you and your child show up is going to determine how you actually then intervene. So you're either seeing it as, oh, there's a problem with my child as an individual in their brain. There's a disease. There's a sickness. That's very scary. And the research shows that it actually removes hope. It's disempowering and it doesn't actually increase or it doesn't work. It doesn't help. If yeah. that process worked, then we would be sitting, we wouldn't be sitting with a crisis we're sitting with now. So if the model that was, if that model that was introduced around 40, 50 years ago was successful, the biomedical model, we would not be seeing the crisis now. We would be seeing improvements. We're not seeing improvements. Things have got worse. Does that make sense? It does. And I so appreciate what you're saying because I, I think that you often hear, certainly online, you see people talking about mental illness like it is a physical illness. And what I think you're saying and feel free to redirect me if I'm if I'm off here, is that mental illness is not a physiological problem per se, but it is a response. And it is a, whether it is a maladaptive or an adaptive response to a certain set of environmental uh, cofactors. So, you know, for example, we can use the pandemic, like were we all clinically depressed and, you know, did have generalized anxiety disorder for the past two years? Or were we, were we having a response to having an appropriate response to a very dire circumstance. Now, certainly, I'm not saying that 
Um, you know, people did, shouldn't have seeked help. Of course they, of course they did, but I really like what you're saying. And what I, what I hear you saying is that we need to really reframe some of these, you know, maybe anxiety and depression as also responses to certain, uh, environmental factors, whether that's maybe maltreatment as a child or it's the current environment or the person has never acquired appropriate adaptive strategies in order to make sense of what's happening in their environment. Absolutely. You summarized that beautifully. And that is, a, you know, there, there's this thinking, Stephanie, that people have to have a medical label to make something valid. Yeah. It's wrong. So yeah. what we've done is you've said, okay, well, you know, you need to have this label of ADHD or bipolar depression or schizophrenia or clinical um, clinical anxiety disorder. You, know, you needed this clinical medical diagnosis to make it valid. But your story is valid. You do not need a medical diagnosis to make what you're going through valid. What you're experiencing deserves to be honored. What every single person is experiencing every day of their life is it, it we, we we need to be validated it could be a it could be a, a little argument with a sibling but that's relevant to you because that may make you feel so bad about yourself that you go to school that day really battling and therefore it affects how you concentrate at school and you know and that may not seem huge in in the in in the scheme of all the things that can happen but if that happens persistently and it's not addressed that child's going to be battling to concentrate, for example, in the classroom environment. So therefore, maybe their, their grades start going down or the teacher notices there's a difference in behavior. Mm -hmm. So then suddenly the parent is called in and say, hey, listen, your child can't concentrate. Your child has ADHD. Let's go for, you know, let's go for the diagnosis labeling route. And then that limits the child. Meanwhile, the child's story is being invalidated. The, a child and an adult, a human, we need to be able to understand what we are going through. We need to be given the tools to be able to process and express and and deal with these issues that we're going through. You can't just eliminate them. You can't eliminate anyone's story. What's happening to you and what has happened to you is always going to be there. But how we learn to manage that is going to be linked to our resilience, going to be linked to our mental health. And it's an ongoing process because life just keeps happening and good and bad things keep happening. I'd love for you to, I think you brought up a really great point with labeling. Uh, and I've had a lot of women in my community over many years, um, maybe complain, and this is not trying to poo-poo on teachers, we love teachers, but sometimes it's easier to label a child as difficult. It's easier to label, well, maybe they have ADHD. And if they have ADHD, maybe they'll be, uh, maybe we can calm them down by giving them some Ritalin or whatever the appropriate, you know, prescription might be. And I think, the problem, at, at least that I see with that, is then when we start to anchor ourselves to this identity of, well, I'm a disruptive person. I'm, I have ADHD. I would see this in clinic. I think I might have even shared this with you last time. It's not necessarily related to uh, our cognitive identity, but I would have individuals who would talk about fibromyalgia and they would, they would give it a possession, like my fibro, my fibromyalgia. And so we start to anchor into these labels and it becomes part of our identity. And then I think it becomes exponentially more difficult to extract yourself from that identity. I am no longer my fibromyalgia or I am no longer the, the disruptive child with the ADHD. So maybe I would love for you to maybe expand on that in terms of how we think about identity and how do we anchor to identity and how is that uh, potentially playing in here with uh, labeling, let's say, and our ability to, um, to honor our stories. 
So identity, as we know, is our value and that kind of thing. But if you if you tell someone you are, that statement you are, especially an authority figure to a child or a authority figure like a medical practitioner or something to a, a patient, there is this uh, almost like absorption of that's who I am. And there's been a lot of research around um, the dangers of saying my fibromyalgia, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. because of the fact that you then get yourself stuck. So labels are very limiting. And when you limit yourself, your own value of, oh, I'm just that, and that's not good, it's broken, it affects your, you know, how you see yourself. So it feeds back into to identity and, and it, it kind of just, it's very, very disruptive. And there's a lot of science around that. We saw in, in some of the clinical trials that we've done is that when someone is consistently labeled, like you've got this, you've got this depression, you've got that, you've got that, you've got that. I'm thinking of one particular subject in our study that had um, years of childhood trauma, but like really bad to the point where the only way that this person could cope was to, to with their coping mechanism was suppression. And they just went through their life and went through school and went, you know, got into good, went to university and it hit them in their mid twenties. And by their sort of thirties, they were collapsing. And in that process of in their twenties, even as a, as a teenager, they, they were showing up with behavioral and emotional and perspective and bodily sensational signals. They were showing up in ways that were being labeled. But the the core issue was, and they were told over and over and over again, and this is a story that happens so many times, way too often. They would their symptoms were looked at as though they were part of this medical disease that they have, and they were told they have a chemical imbalance. Meanwhile, that research on the the chemical imbalance of yes. serotonin, please say please say more on that. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. the it's a it's a hypothesis Correct. that research has been done on and the research was never ever confirming of that hypothesis and in fact much research has been done and evaluated showing that that is not the case people do not have depression because of a chemical imbalance so if someone is labeled oh you just have a depression because you have a clinical imbalance that person's already feeling bad about themselves now you tell them that there's something wrong with their brain as well how scary is that you're like oh my god my brain's broken Exactly, yeah. and then identify yeah. that they've, as an individual that attacks the value system. Mm-hmm. So that's on the identity identity labeling side. It's very limiting. And also, you know, the thing is, is if you label someone with a label that's not even scientific, it's unfair on the person. Eighty about, Around about 95% um, of the world's population believe that depression comes from a chemical imbalance. That's where we're sitting today. It's an absolute crime because there is – a paper was released by a group of scientists last year. It had in July last year. It had within the first few months, it had more, more views. It was over 20 million views than any published paper for a, a very long period of time. It hit all the media. Even people like CNN were talking about this article and, and, and it was not always positive. It was like negative people criticizing saying, Oh, but that is the cause of depression. Well, they were scared. I think people who hear that are like, but wait, yeah. how can I justify taking my Prozac? How can I justify taking my SSRI then? I've been doing it for 20 years. Doesn't that, like, I've, have I made the wrong choice? Like that, that's very confronting. Very, very scary. It's very yeah. confronting. It's very scary. And that's, and the last thing I want to do is add to someone feeling bad about themselves, because if yeah. you were to take that, that is not your, that's not on you. If you were told by a medical professional that that is, that's what you have and that's what you need to take, who are you to question that unless you know more? And if that's the consistent public messaging then that's all you know and medical professionals like 95 percent 90 percent of those kind of 
prescriptions for antidepressants are, are uh, given by a medical, like a doctor. They've had three, a three or four week rotation in, in the mind. They haven't had training. I've had nearly 15 years of training in mind. There's a huge difference between someone who's had three weeks versus nearly 15 years of, of training and 40 years of, of um, research in the field and 25 years of clinical experience. And that's just me. There's thousands of therapists out there and clinicians and people that have had similar training and experience. That is not it, it, what I'm the point I'm making is that that to, to tell people that you um your depression is from a chemical imbalance is the wrong way around. What happens is that we experience life through our mind. Our mind is not our brain. Our mind uses our brain. Our mind is our psychological ability to think, feel, and choose. It has a whole physical component as well, electromagnetics and gravitational fields and all kinds of stuff. That combination of our ability to think, feel, and choose is put into the brain. So if you are experiencing something negative, an abuse or something, like this subject that I was talking about in, in one of our clinical trials, that's consistently being processed by your mind and into your brain. It's changing your brain. It also goes into your body. So every experience we have all day long is being processed by our mind into our brain and our body. So it's becoming part of three places, our mind, brain, body interaction. Now that influences how we show up as a person. How we show up as a person, as an alive human being, is a combination of mind, brain, and body. And if we have had a consistent input of, of negativity in, into us, that does change our brain and our body. Our brain is changing every moment of every day. And if it's toxic stuff coming in, like this particular subject, grew up nearly 15 years in a very, very, very toxic environment. That is 15 years of wiring into the mind-brain-body connection that is very toxic. Obviously, it's going to affect how they show up. But to just say that that their reasons they're showing up with extreme depression and so on is because of a brain disease, that is unfair to it's invalidating to what they went through. Yes, there are is damage to the brain because you when you have a toxic experience, it changes the wiring of the brain, which changes the immune system response, which changes the cardiovascular response, the hypothalamic pituitary response. The muscle, can, yeah. The whole your entire body response. So mm. we do need the medical support to deal with the impact, the result of, but that's not the cause. And it's not as simple as serotonin's imbalanced. There are a multitude of neurochemicals. And there's research that, that research that, that I, that I quoted that had these 20 million plus hits. They took literally every study they could find on all the different hypotheses about, um, the, the serotonin or chemical imbalance. And they analyzed them. And those studies were not saying that we have a chemical imbalance. They actually did not say that at all, but that's what the public have been sold. You know, and so what does someone do if they've been on antidepressants for 20 years and they were told that they have a clinical depression? Well, you know, you, 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 fortunately our brain changes and that's not your fault. And what we first need to do is honor the story, the, the, the reason behind what's more important now is not to worry about the fact that you've been on antidepressants. Yes, it will change your brain. Yes, you, you can, you, you've got to be careful of withdrawal. You can't just stop an antidepressant because your brain has changed. Extremely important that you, that you taper off very, very slowly and with a professional. Do not, if you're listening, do not do, if you're like, ah, oh, that's it. I'm, I'm off it. Don't do that. Uh, these are very, very strong drugs. Um, definitely need to be supervised if you're if you're thinking of tapering off Absolutely. of them. Absolutely, and yeah. I actually have interviewed some of the top professionals on my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, and the references are all over my books and websites and everything, even the latest book um, on how to um, taper 
and a medical professional. So you can't just stop because you can get suicidal and all kinds of things can happen. So that's that's one side. If you make the decision, make sure you get medical professional advice and that you understand the process. Don't go to someone who doesn't know what they're doing. There's a lot of people out there that do know how to guide um, withdrawal and there are withdrawal symptoms. So that's very important. The other side is you you need to then be able to have time to honor your story. And that's where the, that's where the mind management comes in. That's on the work. That's the work. That's the work that has to be done. Mm. There is this, obviously the therapist support, counseling, etc. But they, you're not with your therapist twenty four seven, nor is your child. You've got to live with yourself. So what we have to do, and this is where the focus of my work is, is to help a person to understand how to manage your mind in the moment. What do I do? When I wake up at three in the morning, when I'm at school and someone's bullying me, or when I've had this issue at home and I go to school and I've got to sit and concentrate in the, in, in the math class, or I'm on the playground and someone's teasing me, or whatever's going on in, in my life as a child or as an adult, what do I do with, how do I manage my mind in the moment? Because you've got to know how to live with yourself. So the work I do is helping a person to understand how they're showing up and how to manage that. And to recognize when you need the support, give you the tools to tell your, to understand, to process, to tell your story, to deconstruct, to reconstruct, to reconceptualize, reconstruct and reconceptualize. And in that process, to recognize the support that you need, whether it's from a parent, whether it's from a sibling, whether it's from a teacher, whether it's from a parent recognizing my child needs some, you know, some extra support like therapy or coaching or counseling, or maybe as a parent for you to cope with a child who's gone through stuff. Maybe you need, what do, what do you need? Because, you know, there's a question I was asked recently, and that is if you had to, what is the first thing that you would do to help with this mental health crisis with children? And you know what my answer is to that and what it was to that? Help the parents. Because if the parents know how to help themselves, yeah. they will model that for their children. Yes. It's very, it's very traumatic when you watch your child go through stuff and you want to help your child and you're being told a message the current message, the standard of care is get them to a doctor, get them labeled, get them medicated. And you're told that that's what good parenting is. Meanwhile, and here I'm sharing a different message that, hey, you that's what you've been told. So don't feel bad about it. You did what you were told. But actually, that isn't the best way for your child. It's not the best way for you. What's best for you is for you to understand what, why are you showing up like that? How can I then rewire the great news, Stephanie, is that when we go into that kind of approach, when we recognize that it's okay to make a mess, it's okay to be in this situation because of what I've gone through, the great hope of that is that we can redirect the neuroplasticity of our brain. We can change our brain structure. We can change how our body functions. We'll never get rid of the memory because memory is imprinted forever. But you can change what it looks like. You can take a lot of the power out of it. You can re, in other words, you don't just disrupt and replace or eliminate. You can't do that. What we have to do is we have to face, accept, deconstruct and reconstruct in a way that gives you a sense of peace. And that's what me, what resilience is. And that's something you can teach a two year old to do. My youngest. So beautiful. Yeah. It's something. Teaching. That's this this particular book. The reason I wrote this is because for years I worked in my practice. I worked with all age groups, and um, I would help parents help themselves. I'd help parents help their kids. I have four of my own kids. They're all adults now. We've got our first grandchild coming in August. Um, thousands of which we're really excited about. Thousands of people. We reach millions through our platform, and I decided it's time to actually write a book to help parents help themselves to help their children. 
and to teach children these tools. If you can give the child, a two-year-old, the tools, can you imagine what that child's going to be like when they do face the issues that are going to happen as they go through their life, into through their school career, into adolescence, into adulthood? You know, you, it's, in, it's inevitable. But if we can have the tools of mind management, which brings us full circle right back to the the beginning why do we have this why is there such a crisis and my answer initially was was that and i was explaining how the crisis has come not from the fact that suddenly we've got this weird reason that there's suddenly more people with mental health issues it's not that this is it's not that there's just this thing that just dropped out of life and it's suddenly now we've got this crisis we've there's a reason there's always a reason for the crisis because mental health has always been around the reason is that you if you stop looking at a person's mind and you take mind management out of the equation and you just try and medicalize misery as i said or pathologize childhood you will end up with a worse mental health crisis and then things like social media will be mismanaged and will add to the problem things like COVID, the pandemic will be mismanaged and will add to the problem the inevitable challenges of life the inevitable technological advances ai is the next major thing that we that we that we're dealing that we're dealing with if we don't teach ourselves to manage our mind we can't deal with any change effectively and that's what i believe we need to do we need to teach our kids from young how to manage the changes in the environment and their world as well as the changes in themselves and the challenges out there so well said and i think you know there's a saying that i'm that's coming up as you're speaking you know things in life don't get easier you just get better and i think that that's sort of what your yeah. what your uh whole arc is here in that things are going to happen a girl's going to break up with you or a guy's going to break up with you they're going to break your heart there's going to be tragedy you're going to lose someone a pet a person they're, you know think you're going to get a bad grade you're not going to get into the school you want you know all the all the trials and tribulations of you know being a young child into adolescence and a young individual but being able to have some of these skills, and I love what you're saying about the parents doing the work first. Uh, I'm sure you are well, you know, know very well Dr. Shafali Sabari. She's a, a friend of mine, uh, and very much very similar message. When people come to her complaining about, oh, my kid is like this and like that, and she's like, all right, I don't want to talk to the kid. I want to talk to you, right? So if we can make sure that the parents have some of these skills first. As you, as you uh, so beautifully said, you're going to be able to model that for your children. And gosh, what an unfair advantage for a three-year-old to be able to go through the neurocycle, which we're going to get into in just, just a moment, um, to be able to sort of evaluate how they're feeling and then rewrite the story and then effectively metabolize. You know, you said that, like the, the story is not going to have as much power over you. Effectively, you're going to essentially metabolize the power that that has. You're going to take the charge or the edge off of it so that we don't have some of these physiological consequences that you're talking about, the cardiometabolic changes and the cortisol and the insulin and all the things that will eventually turn into a uh, you know, a physical or a physiological uh, problem or, you know, seeing physiological derangement in a way. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. 
I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Let me, let me, let, okay. So maybe let's get a little nerdy. Um, as we're diving into the neurocycle, um, you talk about, you talked about this in your first book, uh, in your second book as well, some of the different brain waves um, that are impacted by the neurocycle. So let's kind of start with some of the, you know, the deltas, the thetas, what happens there. And then we can start moving into um, uh, the, 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 the pieces of the neurocycle. So each of the steps and what they mean and how those, like that thinking, feeling and choosing and how that's going to now drive, you know, dendritic uh, uh, brain growth. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I love the fact that we're going to do a little bit of the science stuff and I'll make it very simple too. And I've got like little props and things. Are you okay with me using some? I props? would love you to. Yeah. Oh. So anyone watching on YouTube, this is going to be super, I'll, super helpful. I'll, yeah. I'll describe it as well for those just listening by audio. So essentially I am a psycho neurobiologist. So that means I look at the mind brain body connection. I have been doing this for like nearly 38 years, nearly 40 years, actually. And we still do clinical trials and we are constantly writing up scientific papers. We've just had one published just recently. We've got about five coming out this year. The point being is that science is very important for us to be able to understand and grow forward in our understanding of everything. So in mental health, that's, that's, we have to keep doing that. We can't sit back on our laurels. So as a psychoneurobiologist, what I wanted to try and understand was how does a thought form? What is a thought? What are memories? What are emotions? What are, what is this thing called life and how does it become part of us and make us do what we do? And, you know, what, how do we, what is going on? And is there any level of control? And what is the, what is the difference between, in that process between the mind and the brain and the body and all these confusing things that are often very lumped into psychological words that are almost sometimes sound like psychobabble. So I wanted to try and sort of distinguish that and break that down. So on a scientific side, when someone, like right now, as you're listening to me, you're hearing words, you are seeing images, if you're watching YouTube as well, and that is, a lot of electromagnetic light forces and gravitational fields and auditory sound waves, a lot of quantum physics and all kinds of things are happening and your brain and body are receiving all those, um, all that, those, all that physics stuff for want of a simple word. And it, it's literally going into your brain through the filter of these, this, these little bio, biofields around you. And going into your brain and your brain is responding and your body is responding. So your brain and body, um, the aliveness of your brain and body is based on the aliveness of your mind. So your mind is not your brain. Your mind is driving your brain. Your mind is driving your body. Your mind is this, these gravitational fields and electromagnetic light forces and all these things. 
and psychologically that's on a science uh, on a physics level psychologically your mind is your ability to think feel and choose in response to life in other words your aliveness if you're dead nothing's happening you're alive you're able to process this conversation and as you are processing this conversation you are actually making somewhere between 800,000 and a million cells every second and you're changing and part of those are changes inside of your brain you're literally growing my words and images that you see into little tree-like structures in your brain that look like pl- like little plants. Okay, I'm gonna get this in the right place. Nice rosemary plant there. Yeah, <laughs> and just to give you an, an image to use yeah. a sort of an idea, little branches, it, like just little, little branches. branches. Yeah, yeah that's mm-hmm. what, so little branches, like a little tree. So our experiences and whatever we have, like this conversation is becoming like a tree-like structure in your brain, growing on on the tops of neurons, which are called uh, little branches called dendrites. And those dendrites, like a tree has three parts. It has a root system, branches, and a a trunk and branches. So the thoughts that you build have of the experiences you're having have that structure. So a thought is the encapsulation of an experience. So this is a discussion we're having about mental health. So you're growing a tree of this discussion. And that tree in this in this discussion, this tree, you could call this tree like you have an apple tree or a peach tree or something. This tree is called mental health, let's say, for example, whatever you title this in your head. So it's about mental health, helping yourself, your children, the crisis in mental health, whatever. But the details of what we say are all the branches, the roots and the branches, the root part are my words and Stephanie's words, just so this is for the audience. So in other words, what you are hearing and the discussion we're having, that's going into the root system. And then your the unique way that you use your mind, the unique way that you think, feel, and choose is basically growth through the tree trunk and producing the branches. So the branches of the tree are your interpretation of what you are experiencing, which then affects how you feel, affects how your body feels, affects what you say and what you do, and it affects how you look at life. So experience via mind into brain as a thought tree, source being the roots, branches being the interpretation, and that combination also is stored in every cell of your body. You have 37 to 100 trillion cells. Now, in your brain, the experience is stored like a tree with all these branches and roots. In your body, in in the cells of your body, it's stored as a change inside that what we call the cytoskeleton. What I'm saying, even if this doesn't make too much sense, is you embody the the, the memory. So the memories, the thought is the main thing. So it's, it's in your mind, your brain, and your body. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And in your mind, it's like a field, like a gravitational field. Like if you think of a podcast, it's got little, you know, the little lines that go up and down. That's an easy way to visualize it. In your brain, it looks like a tree. In your body, it looks like a change in the thing that holds the cell firm. Um, and the epi- sort of the gene part of yourself. Just that's the most basic rule thing. But I want you to understand that what you're experiencing is going to all these different parts. Now, because it, that is happening, and it's happening as we're talking at very, very fast speeds, your brain is responding. And we can pick up the responses in the brain to what you are experiencing. We can also pick up the responses in your body. So mind is the psycho part. Neuro is the brain part. Biology is this body part. So psychoneurobiology is looking at how our mind, brain, and body respond to life and the impact. So if if someone... If right now I had, for example, I use QEEG in my research, 
Um, and that looks at, we put electrodes on a person's head and in a certain placement. And that reads the, that, that basically is telling us the electrical, electromagnetic, elect, electrical response of the brain, how the brain is responding electro, um, electromagnetically, basically. And it, we can read it as waves waveform so like think of the waves of the sea the further further far, far out to sea i'm in miami i'm actually looking right at the sea at the moment so far to see these big huge swells then as you come in closer the swells get a little smaller and then as you approach the beach it builds into a wave the crest forms at the top it crashes on the beach i've got the little waves and it goes and repeats the cycle that's kind of what's happening in your brain it's this this flow of energy um the biggest waves furthest out are the delta it's delta waves and then you get the theta waves that are a bit slower um, that are a bit faster, and then as you move further in, you get the alpha waves, which are uh, which are a little bit faster. Each one getting faster, beta is faster, high beta is the crest of the wave, and then the crashing on the beach and the little waves are gamma, which are the fastest waves. So you have all of those waves performing different functions, working together in different states, etc. And you have it's unique for each person. There's certain patterns we can identify, but it's very much unique to the person and the context. So, for example, if someone's really upset and they um, they've been teased at school and they've been maybe they've maybe something happened they got new glasses or something and they got teased at school and then at break time they got called a nerd and you know just kind of went on for the day. That experience is very anxiety provoking for a child. It makes them feel terrible. And if we had to put a QEG on, we would see. Um, bursts in the crest the the size of the wave that's approaching the beat that the, the, the surfer wants to you know surf it'll be bigger and the crest so the will conscious be the conscious waves like the alpha the beta and the gamma are going to be larger in that in that the, the no not the alpha so the beta the the beta and the high beta so the beta is okay. the wave mm-hmm. the high beta is the white crest the crest and mm-hmm. the crashing on the beach and the little waves and the impact that they, that makes, that's the gamma wave. Those are going to increase and the others are going to decrease, something like that. So you're going to have a pattern. Now, but we can't then say, oh, okay, if you have an increase in those, that means you're anxious. Because we also see that exact same pattern when someone's really excited. So like now, let's say that you are, um, you know, you're writing, you, you learned something new at school, you did really well in a test, or you're having this really great discussion where you say, Oh, that's what it means. Or you're having a great time with a friend and, you know, you give the children having free play, for example, which is so important. And they, they are unstructured free play, unsupervised by adults. And they're out there and exploring and experimenting and resolving problems. We're going to see lots of high beta and gamma because they're in a state of learning. And so we therefore can't take a waveform and say, oh, that's a bad one, that's a good one. If we see it happening for long periods of time, so now this is, think of a wave. A wave builds, crashes, and then it gets sucked back in, and then it repeats. It's a constant cycle. We don't just have a big high wave. If we do, we have a tsunami, and we have a problem, and we have destruction. So what we want is to have the cyclic nature of the waves. So we want them to build, and then they're going to crash and build and then you know it's this whole cycle going on you don't want the constant big wave and then it you know builds and builds and builds and it crashes in your life so there's this balance that we want to achieve if it's if the balance is happening then that helps the rest of the body the hormones and the heart and the immune system and those kind of things will be balanced as well so we can deal with an acute situation like for example if you tease 
once or twice about wearing the glasses. But if it consists and it persists and it carries over into other areas and it doesn't get under control and you're also the new kid at school and whatever, and it just goes on and on if it's chronic, then it's like that wave is building and building. Then it, then it's moving into a dangerous state. And then it, so it can tip us in the wrong direction. When we see that happening, then we, we've got to always look at then what's happening in the body. What are the other example what's happening in the psychoneurobiology so yeah. if you see that someone if you see that someone's really upset and they're crying and they're withdrawing and they're not eating and they're throwing tantrums and they're taking their sibling and there's a pattern of not sleeping and there's a pattern building then if we had to look at that person's that child's brain we would probably see a lot of high beta and, and maybe not enough cycles and that kind of thing and maybe even a little bit of a flat line like when a, when the sea is very calm for too long so if anything goes on for too long then it's problematic now we want to always back we won't never want to just look at the brain you always want to say what is what are the how's the child showing up so let's talk about the emotions let's talk about how their body feels let's talk about their, their what are they saying and doing their behaviors and let's talk about their perspectives four categories of signals we want to look at that how they're showing up we want to find their story and then we can see oh okay there's a whole thing going on here that's negative so that makes sense that the brain is in this kind of almost what we call tonic state of the wrong too much of too long the waves maybe a bit bigger than they should be and going on for a bit too long, then we can also look inside the body and see, okay, what's happened to things like cortisol and homocysteine and prolactin and things like telomeres. In other words, we can look at biological things to see um, if, if a person is calm and dealing with or dealing with the issue. And even if they're crying, but they're dealing with the issue, they're facing this stuff, they're not suppressing it. We'll see the body will tell us the story as well. So the body will, will the things like, cortisol will be at the right levels and homocysteine which is very linked to inflammation very linked to how we're managing our emotions as is cortisol as is something like prolactin as are telomeres which are the ends of chromosomes those are all very linked to how we are managing our emotions on their own they don't mean anything but in the whole pattern if you look at the brain if you look at it with the story if you look at it you know that if you put it all together you can build a picture and you would, I would imagine you would see behavioral changes too, like sleep is going to be, and you can measure sleep certainly. So you can look at how much deep rest is this individual getting? Are they able to fall asleep and maintain the sleep? Are they, you know, and what are the, what are the out, are they getting night? Are they having nightmares and waking? Like all of these sort of different behavioral well, cues as well. Yes. Yeah, so it's four categories. Behavioral, mm -hmm. one, behavioral is one of them. So there, there's four categories of signals that you'd look at. How, how is it, you ask yourself the question, how is my child showing up? Mm -hmm. well, how am I showing up as a parent? as a person, as a human, what are my emotions? What are my behaviors? In other words, what am I saying? What am I doing? How am I sleeping? All that stuff. What is it? What is my body going through? How am I feeling physically? And then also what is my perspective on life? So it could be depressed for anxiety and for, for emotions or bodily sensation. It could be a lot of gut issues for um, emotion, uh, for for behaviors, it could be maybe withdrawing or tantrums. I'm just making something up, and maybe perspective could be something like, you know, life sucks. I hate school. I don't want to go to school. Something like that. I'm just making it very simple. But what what we need to do is take those as signals, as information, not as diseases or symptoms of a disease. Mm. 
You don't take those and list those and stick a label on and assume it's part its neurobiological cause is mm. chemical imbalance or damage to the genes or damage to the brain that's causing that. That's not the cause. The brain will change, but that's the impact, the result. The cause is in what is going on in that life. So those four signals can be, you can imagine that they're four balloons and that imagine four balloons on strings and four balloons when you pull up, when you, when you actually pull the balloons up, you can see they're attached to a tree. Okay, so track with my visual. So look at it like this. So if I say, how are you feeling? Okay, so that's the first balloon. How, where does that, what does that feel like in your body? Second balloon. So that's the behavior, that's the bodily sensations. Mm-hmm. First one, emotional signal. Third one is, what is it making you do? And how are you doing it? Sleep, talking, whatever. Um, and, um, fourth one is how are you looking at life perspective? Now, as, as you pulling, as you identify those balloons, you pulling up what they're attached to and they're attached to a thought tree. The roots. That's tree. Pulling up the roots. It's the whole tree. Oh, the that whole tree. Okay. Conscious, the full tree. So what happens is that when we consciously and deliberately and intentionally gather awareness of these four signals, we start pulling the tree that they're attached to into our conscious mind from the non-conscious. That tree is that experience that the person's had in that root branch tree, you know, the, the, the branch um, root tree, uh, tree trunk branch format. And so essentially all the roots and the branches being the memories, the details. Memories are details inside a thought. A thought's not the same as a memory. A thought's the thing, the experience made of root memories, made of processing memories, made of branch memories. Okay. So the four balloons pull up the thought and that's got the detail. Now we need to look at that thought. The first part that we're going to see are the branches with the leaves. So we're going to, and that's going to tell us more details about the emotions, the behaviors. And that's like your question. How are you sleeping? Okay, this poor sleep. What is it? What are the details of the poor sleep? That's what you're going to see in the next level. So once you've pulled it up, you've gathered awareness of it. Now you're going to reflect on, okay, what are the details of the sleep? How often is it an issue? Um, how, what else other behaviors? What are other emotions? How, when you feel that emotion, do you always, is there always going to be that gut reaction? Is there always, I've got a sore tummy mommy every time they're in that particular situation? Is it a migraine? Maybe a migraine, migraine, however you say it, different people say it differently. Um, so you're going to look at those bodily signals. You're going to look at the four, the four signals in, in a bit more depth. Then you're going to gather that, put that information and write it down. It's really important that you write stuff down. Now I'm, I'm taking this from the angle of you being the parent observing your child. Okay. I'm giving you this example and what we're busy doing at the moment for those of you that haven't already realized. And Stephanie, you probably realize this too. I'm busy working through a neurocycle. Yes. Okay? Yeah. Thing is, uh, you've gathered awareness of your signals. Then you've that's brought up the tree. Now you're looking at the branches, which is the detail of those signals and how it's showing up in your life and the self-talk and how it's showing up in relationships and in schoolwork and in relationships with siblings and just living. How is it, you know, showing up? And then you're going to write that down. When we write things down, and I'm not asking you to write nice, neat essays. I'm asking you to literally throw it on the page. And there's a huge reason why you just write all over the place. Preferably, don't even write on lines. Um, write across the lines. Write something there, something there, whatever pops into your mind from doing those first two steps. The more um, creative you are with that writing, the more you just follow your 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 gut instinct. 
you are getting you are what that means is that you are connecting your non-conscious and your conscious mind and you're getting deep insight and you're going to pull up the tree even higher and you're going to start seeing the roots so we have to dig through the tree trunk to the roots and the writing helps take you down to that level then you're going to look at what you've written and i'll give you all the timing of this in a moment let's just get sort of the process then you're going to look at what you've written down and you as you write down you there's going to be a lot more that you write in this way than what you actually gathered and reflected on. Remember, the first step was to gather awareness of the four signals. The second one was to reflect on more detail around those signals. When you write this down, you're going to have all that, but you're going to have more. You're going to start seeing connections and things that you didn't see before. You're going to start seeing a little in a pattern. So the fourth step is to look at what you've written and to start seeing, you know, this has happened. What can I do about it? But before you get to that part of the recheck, you actually want to look at, you know, what have I written here? Can I see connections? Oh, wow, I didn't even see, think of making that connection. And, you know, so you the writing starts creating, bringing out, the recheck starts looking at that writing and you're still kind of writing. You This is when I recommend you take another color, for example, and you start drawing circles and links and arrows and look for patterns and antidotes and and triggers and the who, what, when, where, why, how. And then you kind of ask yourself a guiding question at this point of this has happened now, what can we do? Up to this point, for these four steps, what you've done is you have consciously and deliberately and intentionally in a very intelligent, deliberate way, you have started identifying, looking at who you are or how you are showing up. Let's take for you as a parent yourself first, and then we can take it your child. Um, and you started now deconstructing to the branches, to the tree trunk, to the roots, and reconstructing. Because you're starting to see, oh, okay, I'm doing that because of this. See, how we show up with our four signals isn't who you are. It isn't... If it's like a problematic behavior, okay, if it's a, if it's a healthy behavior, then that is who you are. I'm talking about now the deconstructing of, of toxic issues. And we can touch on the other side of the positive side in a moment. Yeah. What you're doing is you, you are looking, how you show up is not who you are. That is you showing up like that because of something. So this process is saying very sequentially going through to the point where you can start seeing the roots. If you skip a step, and I've done the research for years, and I'm still doing the research. If you jump straight to journaling without specifically trying gathering awareness of all four signals, if you just gather awareness of your emotions and you jump to writing down your emotions, you will not get the same benefit. Your brain-mind connection is very sequenced, very ordered, and to get your mind management under control, to drive neuroplasticity, to drive the changes that you want, to, which is to learn to cope with the situation and to be able to increase your resilience and to manage your mental health, which doesn't mean eliminate. It means, how am I going to live with this? How am I going to take the energy out of this toxic thing so that I don't stay get so depressed that I can't function? A depression can shift back to the normal part because depression and anxiety are actually very good things for you. They're not bad. There are no bad emotions. Every emotion is information. It's an informational signal. It becomes disrupt disruptive when it, like the wave example, when it starts getting too big because it's unmanaged and then it starts getting like a big tsunami. Then it shifts out of the working for you into working against you mode. So the neurocycle helps you to recognize, hey, this is a tsunami depression emotional signal. I need to rebalance it and get it back to where it actually works for me because depression and anxiety are actually very, very good for you. They enable you to be 
all of who you are in your humanity are children and adults we we should not be scared of things like depression and anxiety we should look at them for what they can tell us and get them back into that balance so this neuro cycle very specifically helps to restore that balance in the brain and we see that we see that with the psychoneurobiological research we see the 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 the, the things rebalancing see for so for example if someone's in a state where the anxiety and depression have thrown them off the curve and they're out of now. Think of a scale. A scale's got a thing in the middle and it's got two plates on the side. And what we want is in the middle, we've got all our emotions and force signals, behaviors, bodily sensations, and our um, perspective. And then here, this, these are the two scales of life. So what happens is if there isn't balance there, then it's going to start tipping. There's going to be more weights on the one side than the other. And then that, when we, as soon as we get an imbalance, that's when we start feeling mental health challenges. And the more imbalanced, the more mental health challenges we feel. You stick a label on that and you diagnose that and tell persons they're broken, you're just going to make them worse. Whereas if we say, okay, no, that's not who you are, but you have a valid reason for feeling like the balance is skipped in that direction. That's a really hard thing you're going through. It's not nice to be teased at school when you're the new kid on the block. It's not nice to go see your parents constantly fighting because they are going through a divorce and you get stuck in the middle and your parents are crossing boundaries and telling you too much. And this is too much for you. Of course, it's going to make that. But how can we get you to the point where we can get a balance so that you can then have the strength to know how to deal with that? And that's what the nearest, the very specific steps of the neurocycle are getting you to get that balance. So it's not taking anything away. It's just bringing the balance back. When the balance is back, then the toxic, in the toxic side of it, the, this toxic nature will then have that energy transferred to the healthy to keep the balance. Energy is never lost. Energy is only ever transferred. When a child throws a tantrum or a child comes home from school and they withdraw to their room and they don't want to talk to you, or if a child's showing, having sleeping issues and they've got nightmares, if a child, any, an adult as well, those are basically warning signals that there's been a tipping of the scales in the wrong direction. And what we have to do is that energy is that what you're seeing is the energy trying to be processed. The child's trying to process. So when a child throws a tantrum or a child kick something or throw something. They're not trying to be naughty. They are trying to tell you something. It's energy that they don't know what to do with. So if you don't help them understand that process, then they'll keep throwing things and then it does become a problem. And then it does look like they're naughty because they're going to get negative reinforcement. And there's this whole misunderstanding. But if we can help a child, hey, listen, I see you want to throw something. I know that that's a lot of bad things have happened something's happened that's made you want to throw something so let's take that energy and let's and you can say this i'll give all the wording in the book of how you can say this to a two-year-old a three-year-old a five-year-old that goes through all the developmental stages how you can take that and, and help a child to transfer that energy what i've also done stephanie is we created a um a, a, a little toy called brainy i don't know if you can see it here it's a little yeah. That, and we have a um, that Brainy is a character that's a superhero that walks your mental health journey. Children that are young, even adults, even adults love this toy. But children love to be able to um, have some kind of point of contact. So Brainy walks your mental health journey. Brainy, you you give a child the ability to say, "Hey, listen, Brainy walks the journey with you. You can help Brainy fix his fix his brain." So brain, when you feel sad. And you pick up Brainy, if a two-year-old doesn't know how to express, which they don't have the words that an adult has, but if they pick up Brainy and bring it to you, it's a point of contact. It's where you as a parent can actually realize, okay, my child wants to tell me something. What you can also do is create an area in your house. Think of it like this. 
when we clean our teeth, we do it in the bathroom. When you cook dinner, you cook it at, you know, you cook it in the kitchen. When you go to the gym, you do a workout. When you play with a ball, you go outside, hopefully, and throw the ball around and you don't break all the furniture. In other words, we understand the designation of place for certain activities. We need to do the same with teaching our children about mind and even ourselves. So if you designate an area in your house, that's a, that's, that's an area that you can teach this concept and that becomes a safe space where a child can always go and sit and no matter, there's no judgment, there's no invalidation, there's no matter what you say, it's that's where you come to process in that safe space. You're going to start teaching the child how to then generalize that to the situation. Like when you're traveling on holiday in the car, you don't have your safe, you know, you don't have your house with you, but in your mind, they know that concept. So what you can do is things like paint a section of your kitchen, if you have maybe, or a section of your house or playroom with that chalk paint. And you can have chalk. We there. put tents. We put tents in there, like a little tent with a little, uh, uh, heavy blanket in there. And so they would go there when they were upset and they go under the heavy blanket and then I would crawl into the tent and then we'd talk. Perfect. That, that's yeah. the concept. That's the concept. Yeah. Yeah. Um, law had a wall painted with chalk and I've had a lot of my patients have done that too. Mm. And there's a box of toys and there's a nice chair or there's a little tent or there's, it's a space that you know that when you go there, that's where you can connect. And if there's the chalkboard, the reason for that is that then the kids could draw pictures, even if it squiggles. If it's the more literate they are, the more words they'll write. Have paper as well, have journals that you can have there as well, that you can date things. So there's a pattern of things happening. You can date and then you can track for the child how they're, um, how they're going through the process. Um, it's also a way for you, if you have your own journal, you can gather notes if you're working with a therapist. You can actually then you've got this insight that you can then give to. So there's so many. I mean, I've, I've got hundreds of ideas in the book of how you can apply and adapt this to a child. And so in the book, too, I'll also say that there's you do a really great job of charts and age appropriate prompts, which yes. I think, you know, what are some of the more appropriate questions that you might ask a three-year-old versus a seven-year-old versus a 12-year-old. So there, I, I really like that laid out because, you know, as a mom who has now a 12 and a 10-year-old, some of the three-year-old strategies would have worked for them, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, but now we have, I also have the appropriate questioning and prompts and ways to talk to my 12-year-old, let's say, or my 10-year-old, which is, which is really useful too. Yeah. What we've also found is a lot of the you know, parents, uh, the, the thing with this is to use this for yourself, as I said in the beginning, as well as for your child. Um, the parents found that just the analogies and things, very easy to understand the neurocycle for yourself. So what's really great is um, is the languaging that's there. You can adapt up as you've got a 10-year-old. I say 3 to 10, but you can adapt the languaging up. And the, and the book that you interviewed me about last time is great for adolescents. But mm. even adolescents, we're finding them, because we've done our beta testing on the book, they, adolescents and parents are even going and saying, okay, I like both because the one is so simple, I can understand the principles and apply it. But you know, and you also, you know your child, so you can use the appropriate languaging. You just sometimes, all we sometimes need as a parent is a prompt, an example of how you could say it. then you can adapt that down to your child so that's what i've tried to provide as you said stephanie with the tables and that kind of thing for children yeah and i, I love the i love the um even just as an adult you know the four categories of signals you know and maybe i'm just a late learner but you know, learning that when i get upset my throat starts to feel a little achy like i start to feel tension in my throat but being able to recognize that is such a superpower for a five or a 10 or a 15 year old. Like I learned it in my thirties, you know, late thirties, early forties. Right. But what an unfair advantage for a kid to be able to say, yeah, I sort of feel like I'm getting some tent, like I get some neck pain or a little, you know, wherever, wherever it manifests in the body. I think that's such a, and a 
Yeah. It's such a great tool and they understand it so quickly. You know, some of my adult patients, the reason that I emphasize this so much in my work is some of my adult patients said, why didn't someone teach me this when I was a yeah, child? Yeah. You know, why didn't someone parent me like this? Why wasn't I given those tools? Why did it take 30 and 40 year old therapy intervention or something like that to actually understand that that was, you know, and to, to be able to express that what we see from the neuroscience as well is that because you like the nerdy stuff too, is that the soon as you have started labeling, doing all these steps as I've described them, you are getting control over that situation. Sometimes you, you know, the kids are so good at finding solutions. I find this in therapy constantly and I get this feedback from parents all the time. When you start walking them through that process, when it comes to that step four, which is the reconceptualization where this is what's happened now, what are we going to do? It is amazing what will come out of a three-year-old's mouth and a five-year-old's mouth. And it may not be the first day, because it takes time to change. You know, and that's the whole friend I mentioned about the timing earlier on. We don't fix anything quickly. Think of when you go and learn a new sport or you learn a new musical instrument or you learn a new subject at school. You don't learn it straight away. We all get that. But when it comes to mind, we all think it's instantaneous. You know, one session of therapy or one neurocycle and you're better. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't take 21 days to build a habit either. That's not correct science at all. It takes very deliberate and intentional mindful work for five to 15 minutes a day over cycles of 63 days, six around 63, 66 days. So you might be thinking, oh my goodness, how am I going to find the time to do this? It's a lifestyle. If you see a pattern in your child that's consistent and persistent, that means it's a pretty established issue that's going on or combination of issues. And you're definitely not going to fix that straight away. So therefore, turn this into a lifestyle. That's why it's great to have the little tent like you described or the area in your house that you can allocate and that you can start talking about those patterns and say, you know, let's talk about these things. So start with yourself. As I said in the beginning, let's focus on the parent. If Let's say you get home from work and you've had a bad day and you walk in the front door and you trip over the kids' toys and they all got the music's blaring or they've got a whole, they're older kids, they've got their friends there and they're running around screaming and there's this huge mess and mess in the kitchen and you've just had that awful day and you know that whatever's been going on maybe your husband was watching them or you're the husband and your wife is watching or you're the husband and husband whatever the combination is you maybe shout freak out get mad I can't do this I've had a hard day at work you know what this this happens it's a reality and then your children like oh what have I done and it can become a real nightmare what you can do is you know this yelling happens whatever you can then do a neurocycle and say oh gosh I'm sorry I did not mean to yell I said but you know, I've had a, I yelled emotions. I'm very frustrated walking in and falling over these toys. I'm, I'm really tired. I yelled, yes. And I, um, I, my, my whole body's tense. And that's why I'm like looking at you, like, you know, coming at you like this, maybe. And my perspective is, oh no, I cannot deal with this now. This is just too much. So you, you say that to the kids and you can do that in a minute. And then you can say, I, and then you can be reflecting. You know what? I had a terrible day at work. It was no justification to yell at you like that and, you know, say ugly things like I did. I'm truly sorry. This is, you know, so you reflect. And then you could go maybe sit in that little area, sit on the couch or whatever, or draw something on the board and on your little board or pull out a piece of paper and do some sort of a writing thing, draw a picture or whatever, pick up brainy. Anything, that third step is some kind of genetic action. When I say genetic action, your genes are always um, operating. They're always making proteins and those proteins encapsulate the con, the information. So when you write, act, visualize, draw, all that kind of stuff, you are directing what you're building inside your brain and your body. So you're guiding what's going to come out next. And it also is giving you more insight. And in you modeling for them, you're teaching them 
that it's, oh, mom can also have bad days. She's not a bad person. If I have a bad day, I'm not a bad person and so on. But if you're going to fix this stuff over time, if there's a consistent pattern, you're going to have to do you know, a lot of work. You're going to have to do the neurocycle for anything from three to five minutes to 15 minutes, maximum 40 minutes. I wouldn't even do that long with a child. And there's a whole chapter on the timing. But you're going to have to do it almost every day over a period of time. The first few weeks are the most difficult because that's where you get into the root of the issue. And at the end of a certain period of time, we'll have the habit. When a, when a habit is built, that means that I can be in a similar situation. I can be triggered. But I and I can remember and maybe have a burst of emotional reaction, but I know what to do. I've got my resilience. I, I I've got a plan in place. And if something comes at me that's new, I know how to deal with it. I've built levels of resilience. When my kids were younger and I would have an outburst, let's say, like that, um, I I love that you said apologize to your kids. I think that that is so important if you have done wrong by them to show them that you are human and yes, you make mistakes, you are not infallible. So I would I would apologize then and say, sorry, mommy had a terrible day, such and such happened. I, You absolutely are not someone who deserves to be yelled at and I apologize. And what I would ask for, and this, I don't know where this, ca- I'm just as a point of interest, I'm asking where maybe this fits in the neurocycle. I would say to them, can we do a redo? Can we have a redo? And then I would m- like fake rewind myself. So I'd like walk backwards and then, you know, I'd make little funny voices and then I would like walk in the door again. I'd be like, Hey guys. And then we would just have this like little, and then we'd sort of play the thing again. So, uh, and then, you know, I would maybe have a chance to, you know, redeem myself the second time around. And my kids did that too. So when my kids were, you know, they were cranky or they were, you know, one boy's hitting the other boy or, you know, whatever's happening. Yeah. Uh, and we would have a little debrief about it afterwards. Like, hey, what was happening? Why are you feeling this way? What's going on for you? My, I, there was one point where I was like, oh, I feel like this is such a good like parent moment because my son, uh, gosh, he must have been like five or six at the time. He's like, mommy, can we have a redo? Can we like redo the whole thing? So like I made a big deal about everyone like going and rewind and making funny noises and then like trying it and then trying it again. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know where that is. That active? Would you say that that's active reach? Is that yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. definitely. That, that redo definitely would be the active reach. But the whole thing of you actually sitting down and you know acknowledging that I, that this, I did that, whatever, that would be your gather awareness. And then yeah. that sort of being wise, the reflect. You may not have written it down, but you may have dramatized something. Most people don't realize that that sequence is there, but you would have done something similar along those lines of maybe enactment. And then, you know, what could have been done better? And then your action, let's redo the rewind thing. So, you you know, neurocycling is how we as humans, you may, I've just put the name to it. I've done the science behind it and I've made it a very um, a conscious and deliberate system that we can actually learn to use more consistently. Um, but because what is happening a lot, and Stephanie, you're probably aware of this as well in the schools, because your kids have probably been exposed to this. There's a lot going on about let's talk about our feelings. And there's a lot of books. If you go and look at the books out there, yep. mm-hmm. there's a lot of talking about our feelings. But the problem is if you just talk about your feelings, you're going to bring stuff up. You can't just be mindful. You can't just meditate, breathe, bring it up. Meditation, breathing, mindfulness, all these things are extremely important, but those just prepare the brain. They, so you have brain preparation, but you have to go beyond mindfulness. You have to go beyond brain preparation into the neurocycle. So you'll see in the book, I talk about brain preparation, which are things like breathing, decompression, you know, getting yourself your neurophysiology under control, that kind of stuff, and then moving into the neurocycle. I'll give you very simple ways of applying it, but that is extremely important in um, the grand scheme of things that we, um, that we, that we, that we balance 
the preparation of our brain. If we're just mindful, it's like a plane flying. You, all the preparation's done. The engineer comes in. They, there's a checklist. There's a co-pilot sticking off things. There's a lot of preparation. Then they fly. They, they take off. If the pilot and the engineers and so on didn't do the pre-checklist, the chances of the plane not working that well, the neurophysiology would be a, could be a potential issue. If the pilot didn't know how to fly the plane, what would happen? The plane would crash. So this is it's a simple analogy, but we've got to know how to prepare the plane, take off, fly the plane, take off. That's the so taking off is, is labeling your emotions and that. But then you've also got to fly the plane, which means you also have to look at where's that emotion in my body, where's the behavior linked to the emotion, what's the perspective, why, and going through the step. That's flying the plane. The actor reaches landing the plane. Let's land the plane. That's enough work for today. So that's kind of like a little way of picturing it. Where does where does daydreaming come in? So is that so you were talking about prep for the brain? Sometimes I'll catch myself, and this is just me as an adult, um, and I I have this conversation with my twelve year old a little bit more now, where I'll catch myself thinking about something in a in a way that I shouldn't be thinking about it, uh, and I'm like, oh, where'd that where'd that thought come from? Is that uh is that prep for the brain? Is that in the awareness? Where does that sort of fall in the in the neurocycle, if at all? Well, that's that. Basically, the neurocycle is the system of how you'd actually do something with that. So, the the mm-hmm. first, the fact that you're aware of it is the first part of the neurocycle. So, gathering yeah. awareness. Oh, I awareness. Thought. Yeah. So, you basically were. Um, what was happening there is that you would daydreaming allows us to op- um, reactivate parts of our brain called the default mode network, and it's actually excellent for developing creativity and that kind of thing. So, daydreaming is actually very good for us. Mind wandering, daydreaming, and I recommend like to take at least a 10-minute block in a day where you just deliberately daydream. But daydreaming happens all the time. So intrusive thoughts are often the result of a daydream, and intrusive thoughts are your new best friend. So basically, when you daydream, it's a way of your non-conscious communicating with your conscious, telling you about things that you need to focus on. And uh, the thought that comes up when you think, where did this come from? That's when you can do a neurocycle to go deeper and find, okay, what is this? Where, what is this thought? Where is it actually coming from to find the source? Because it's a message. Daydreaming helps us to be creative and to find the message of, you know, what's disturbing us or what needs attention or something like that. And you had mentioned before, and I wanted to come back to it, the benefit of free play. So this uh, recording is going to be, we're releasing this at the time of your book release in August, where at least children in the United States are getting ready to go back to school. Um, And then, you know, I'm in Canada, so we start in, in September, but it can be that that August September, October, November time is often very structured, right? So we have like school and then there's, we have after school Mandarin classes and guitar lessons and soccer and da, 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 da. So what can we, can you speak a little bit more about the benefits of free play? And then, you know, we were talking a little bit about some of the waves, uh, you know, the different, uh, the different uh, brain waves. What are we trying to um, garner with more free play versus structure play? What is the benefit to the child in terms of learning and in terms of, um, and in terms of uh, brain development? It's so important that structure, unstructured play is more important than the structure that's, that a child is exposed to. So it should be a priority in a child's life. It should be, there should be more unstructured and free time than structured time. And that's quite a challenge for in this day and age for parents, especially with the demands of school and that kind of thing going back to school. So it's not, that's the ideal. Um, the, the unstructured play 
free play that is unsupervised by an adult is vital in a child learning to actually understand themselves and understand how to cope in life. If we remove that, we are, we are, we are really putting our children in a straitjacket. In terms of brain development, it's massive. In terms of intelligence, creativity, brain development, just physically developing the brain, the psychoneurobiological links, the connection, um, leading to you know wise decision making, more resilience. It has a multitude of benefits in that sense. So it's actually a vital part of a day a child's life, um, and it, we should be having. We should have our kids should have ideally three to four hours a day of unstructured play. It's hard to even put ten minutes in in some of our kids' lives, and that's yeah. um, that we may have to relook at as parents and decide: Do I really need my your child doesn't need all those lessons? They'll be they'll benefit more from less lessons and more free play and spread things out a lot more. And they especially need to wind down after school. If you're going to send for any kind of lessons, I would, if if at all possible, do it sort of more early evening, late afternoon versus directly after school. That wind down time is is really important where they can just lie around and do nothing or go in the garden and play with their friends and make up games. And, you know, where you keep an eye on them so it's safe. You don't want them to be in an unsafe environment, but you letting them sort their own arguments out and you letting them work out what to do. So important to unwind and um Otherwise, the brain is draining. You're draining like your cell phone. With too many apps open on your cell phone. Think of it like that. That's a great analogy. All the structure is multiple apps open on your cell phone, and your battery is going to die fast. That's what's going to happen to our kids. And if we consistently do that, it does affect creativity. It will that they will have mental health challenges. They will feel more depressed. They will feel more anxious. It increases all le- all those kinds of levels, and those are signals telling them they need a rest. They need and they that rest is that, that that's unstructured play. Yeah, and I was I was listening to your podcast uh, in preparation for our conversation today, and I think you uh, dropped a stat. It was something like the average child in the states, uh, or you can say North America more broadly, um, has I think it was three to seven minutes of free time, and then it was three to four hours of like gaming and structured, you know, after school activities, and I was just. Blo- I mean, I might have the wrong numbers a little bit wrong there, but, but that's I said around ten minutes. It's, it's that's exactly the situation. They're having three to ten minutes a day of unstructured play. The rest of the time is structured. That's insane. They're having like they're having kids are having like twelve hours of structure to sixteen hours of structure. In a and day. does that include video games as well? Like we include video games in structured play as well. Well, sometimes it depends because if 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 they if a ki- if kids get on and they're playing together and there's a whole you know if they're doing sometimes you know they do it. Um, through the, these, you, they can game with another child in another yep. area in the house or something like that. That is actually pretty creative. So I'm not anti that at all. Um, you just want to make sure they're also getting outside physically. And, you know, I know it's cold, some temperatures are cold, but, you know, dress them up, let them roll in the snow. I mean, these things are let them build a snowman, let them run with their dogs. You know, these are very important. Let them play with sticks. They don't always need stuff. Let them play with your Tupperwares. Let your babies empty your Tupperware, your, your let them play with those kinds of things. Let them go build things with sticks in the garden. You know, that's, that is really, really important. Yeah. I love, I love that you said that because sometimes my, my son will get on a FaceTime call with his buddy and then they'll play, I don't know, Minecraft or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. 
but there is some sort of leadership that's taking place. Okay, we're going to go here and then we're going to mine this mine. I don't know Minecraft at all, but it's like, you know, I'm going to go here and then we're going to do this thing over here and then we're going to go to this world and we're going to build this thing. So there is some kind of leadership and creativity happening there. And to your point, yeah, we, but we also want them getting sunshine. Like we, you know, we want them getting some vitamin D. So there's, it's always, I always try to allow some of that because it's also connection with their friends that maybe they're not in the same school with anymore and it's fun for them, but it's leadership skills and it's creativity. That's great. And- That's really great. You don't have to be frightened of those. You know, we don't have to be frightened of anything um, like AI and video games. And obviously when I say don't frighten of anything, there's some terrible games out there. Obviously we need to use yeah. our description, but I'm yeah. just saying that everything that these kids are going to, they want to do it. They chat, we live in a technological age. If you stop them, you're making, they're, going, they're just going to want it more. It's teach them to manage it. Teach them to manage. Don't tell them you can't go on internet. Teach them how to go on internet. Teach them how to play the video games. Teach them about balance. Help them structure that balance in that, okay, you've played three hours of video games. How about you have you and your friend now? Let's go and let's go for a walk through the forest or let's go, mm-hmm. what, you know, walk on the beach. I don't know what your environment is or let's go ride bikes in the neighborhood where it's safe, you know, that kind of thing. Wonderful. All right, your new book, tell us where we can find it, the name of it again, and where people can find out more about you. Absolutely. It's called How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess, A Guide to Building Resilience and Managing Mental Health. Obviously, wherever books are sold, you can find it. And uh, my my Instagram handle is Dr. Caroline Neef. My podcast is How to Clean Up Your Mental Mess. I've got lots of other things. I've got an app called the NeuroCycle app, which is really great to guide you through the NeuroCycle um, great for, we've got decompression activities on there and many neurocycles and we're adding a parent add-on um, that will be uh, that that will be in should be in before the end of the year um, so but that in the meantime can there's a lot of guidance there for anyone to help that needs Beautiful. help and I will just say I do enjoy the memes that you put on your Instagram they're very entertaining just as a, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're they're so funny yeah, on Fridays, I love them. All right, Dr. Leaf, thank you so much for your time, your focus, your energy, your brilliance today, and all of your research. This is going to be so valuable. Every parent uh, who's listening to this, I think, is going to take some value out of it. And uh, yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Always enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 